podcast ain't played nobody. Bill, you're the historian. You're the expert. The statistician. I've written the book. You are a tour guide through the annals of college football history. When was South Carolina in the Atlantic Coast Conference, Bill? A <laughs> uh, long time ago. Uh, back when back when Bob Ryan was a uh, was our age, uh, they were in the ACC. They were part of the giant a thousand team mass of a Southern Conference that existed through the twenties. When a bunch of, when a certain select handful of football schools decided, you know, we're the only ones who are serious about football. We're going to form the the Southeastern Conference. Mm-hmm. So they continued on their life in the Southern Conference till the 1950s. They joined the ACC, which made them, of course, a basketball school. And then they went independent in 1971, presumably because they weren't a basketball school. So, okay, so Bob Bryan or John Feinstein or Pete Prist, I don't know, all those old white sports writers look alike to me. But one of them was frustrated um, as South Carolina beat Florida in the basketball business. Um was frustrated South Carolina left the ACC uh, for the SEC ostensibly, but they they didn't. There's like years and years and what twenty years in between that. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna defend his comment because it was uh, kind of hilariously. Well, I mean, com- I commend him actually for being so amazingly random with it. I appreciate random history. That's um, kind of honestly. That's why we're leading the show with it. Was I um. I usually avoid the take as much as possible, but when it is that strange, when it is like a grandpa non sequitur like that, and it sort of involves that kind of periphery of where we work on the show, I I feel I felt we were obligated to include it. Yeah, and I mean he's technically right. They were technically ACC, and you know for all we know they they would if they'd have stuck around they would have become just like North Carolina in the, in basketball. I'm gonna guess not. Probably not. But you know, they are a Final Four team now, so um, the world is their oyster, and I congratulate them. So, so here's the here's the scary thing with crazy old sports writer. Um, I kind of agree, and I've, been, I've made the joke a couple times on Twitter about how I do find it funny they're in the Final Four in the basketball business because um, they... Ooh, man, I'm going to take some heat for this because I know we have South Carolina listeners. Bill, I don't know how SEC they is. I've never really felt that way. I feel... So what- I mean, I just what are feel your like specific complaints uh, about South Carolina? Oh, man, this is, none of this is going to be based in any sort of merit or fact. So it's like a full cast segment. Um, it just doesn't feel right. Also, I think it's less about South Carolina and more about the giant, glaring, obvious, like, land-grant ag school that you pass coming from the West to get to South Carolina. The first time I went to Clemson as a sports writer, I had been there as a, like a wee little child. Um, but the first time I went as a sports writer, I was was overwhelmed with the SEC-ness of, of every fiber of their being, right? <laughs> Completely disinterested in basketball. Giant land-grand school that takes really like inordinate pride in things like landscaping, okay? Right. Um, football centric 24 7 365 mentality they go to the baseball games to talk about the football team um otherwise completely um obsolete small college or town you know without the college wouldn't be anything reminds me so much of like auburn or i don't know starkville and and yet we have this slightly more metropolitan uh Capital City University, urban campus, 
in Colombia. Um, your hair gel quotient is up. Um, your your out of state from the from the northern states quotient is up, and not in that weird Florida way where they're like first generation. You know, my dad was an investment banker in Massachusetts, and now we live in St. Pete. Like legit. <laughs> Influx, more Yankee. I mean, I'm not saying that Columbia isn't a southern place. I mean, look, as I say this, I'm just digging my own grave, and that's fine. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm, just, I'm, letting, yeah I'm just sitting back and letting it happen. When they expanded in 91, they wanted Florida State. They really liked Arkansas. We're still not sure why. Um, they really liked Arkansas. Arkansas, to its defense, instantly gelled, I think. They don't have a natural rival. They may never have one now that we've hey, given them. Hey, now hey. that we've given them y'all, it makes too much sense to make sense. Um, but Arkansas gelled, right? They had Houston Nut. They found ways to apply their psychosis, like in, in like a direct way, to various SEC programs. You know, Malzahn, Auburn, Nut to Ole Miss. Like it just worked for whatever reason. They are like a like a diagonal shift off of the weird mania of LSU fans. So it's a border state that worked. South Carolina, I don't know. I will Just say, never felt thing, it. I, though I've been to Columbia, South Carolina once. Um, I mean, the stadium is is lovely. The atmosphere was great. It, it was a different experience. Like I was told, their campus is nice. I did not see their campus because I went. We we went to. I don't even remember what our meeting place was, but then like with with some friends, we oh we met at their hotel and then drove to the game. We didn't see a a, a single sliver of campus when we were driving there, and you that could have been our fault. We took lovely? the wrong route. Well, the stadium, yeah. I mean, it got loud, um, and you know, you get it's reasonably the fans are reasonably close to the field. I had no problem with the stadium. Um, it didn't have much shrubbery. <laughs> But and it was in the middle of a fairgrounds parking lot. But yeah, I mean that was it. it didn't Still feel it, well. Yeah, it it only sort of felt like a, a an SEC kind of thing. Now I mean they you know they have a high ceiling. I'm not gonna they could they're they're just fine as a program. But I I sort of see what you're saying. I'm gonna let you dig your own grave. But I sort of see what you're saying. I need to put a caveat on it. It's not that I think that they're better or less or more or less deserving of the SEC gold star. I don't care. I try and I try and poop all over this conference as much as I can. I just don't know if culturally that they were... Now everyone's going to start screaming Missouri at me. Sorry, but yeah. You have a lot of people from Chicago on your campus. Um, but we've got we've got greenery around our stadium. I get like I get the Missouri thing, but the you know, Missouri and A&M didn't come in for a while. It's just funny that you can you could expand almost infinitely in on the I-10 and I-20 corridor going west more so than you can going east. It's very strange. You know, yeah. A&M, only a couple of years, it feels like they fit. Do you? St- I mean, I imagine you still have this issue where South Carolina wanted to be, one, I think really wanted to identify this way, whereas I think the problem with Missouri and why it's almost too obvious of a take is that the, I think the jury's still out with Missouri as to whether or not they feel like, I think your fans don't necessarily feel the burning desire to be included. Oh, no, yeah, let's not go that far. They were, Missouri fans are desperate to Missouri fans are desperate to feel unincluded. Uh, that 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 hunger that for that disrespect and and you know being overlooked and whatnot. There's a chip on the shoulder of Missouri. I think that's the biggest thing that 
the big, most SEC thing Missouri has going for it is that there is a, a an insecurity and a chip on the shoulder of Missouri fans, just like there kind of was when Arkansas came to the table uh, after years of having to be in a conference with Texas. Maybe maybe this is just like a therapy group for A and M and Arkansas and Missouri. Right, but you never. Um, but, yeah, all those Mizzou fans that are from like north of Jeff City. I mean, did they grow up with any kind of IQ or? I mean, need to apply themselves against the standards of the SEC. Well, no, because they were in the Big Twelve. Right, but but they also a lot of people, but a lot of them come from Big Ten country. Uh, let's not overstate that. The, the, one of the problems with Missouri is that St. Louis is Big Ten country. St. Louis, uh, in that it wants to be everything to everybody, right? Um, and so, yeah, like you can there's there's an Illinois influence in St. Louis. There's a uh, a lot of Big Ten influence there, but only, only some of those people come to Columbia. Columbia is a a uh, for better or worse a a lot of different cultures in a small amount of, of space. And now they are a lot of cultures, so not like just Southern. But um, no, I, I, I've I've always said like the the chip on the shoulder that that, that kind of hunger is the most important thing to being kind of an SEC fan base. I think South Carolina has that. I think Missouri has that. Uh, and as I've said on this podcast before, that's why I want NC State and Oklahoma State to join the SEC so that we get all the chips on all the shoulders. Um, but regardless, yeah, I, I think... Well, I think I, one of the reasons this podcast works so well is that you know when I'm actually um, effing with Missouri, that you know I'm not actually effing with your alma mater, but rather trying to needle the uh, self-applied haughty merits of those in our industry who carry the MIZ. And realize that only a few hundred uh, Missouri students at any given time are actual journalism students. But you know, why do you think that? The, why do you think Missouri doesn't make a better point of this? We are in the ditch. I haven't even done the show intro yet. Why don't make you a, think that, make a bigger you know, point of what? The fact that they're not just a J school. I feel like Missouri should quietly and well, privately contact would... every one of their their journalism <laughs> graduates who are working in the field and never shut up about it to a Northwestern degree. Like, to that level, not to a degree, sorry, for pardon the pun. Um, and just say, hey, uh, why don't, instead of doing that and beating your chest... How many uh, engineer majors do you talk to, just on a day-to-day basis? You talk so, to it's funny you mention that. A friend of mine, um, uh, a friend of ours named Bunky Perkins on Twitter, yeah. tried to create the analog for, because of the Northwestern basketball thing last week, like, mm-hmm. what is the graduate culture that drives you the most crazy in your own industry? And he works in oil and gas, and he said Texas A&M engineers are like constantly very braggadocious about being Texas A&M engineers. Yeah. I can't think of one in my deep south. I mean, for a while, there was Georgia Journalism School was a thing when they didn't let old Steve Godfrey in. And so one day when I went to Peabody, <laughs> I'm going to just absolutely defile the stage. Um but it's funny because there's I know way more working journalists from the University of Florida, like way more. Um, the, I think if you go into like wetlands management or some sort of like soil analysis, I know a lot of Mississippi State people. But I feel like if you work in soil analysis, are you bragging about that? But yeah, well, that's kind of my point. On a day to day basis, if you're talking to people within your industry, then the only Missouri grads you're going to talk to are people within that industry. Um, and, and for the record, uh, most of my, a lot of my least favorite journalists are Missouri grads. So I'm not going to stick up for them. Can we name names? Um, nope. Um, I mean, you can kind of process of deduction or if you fought, fo- if you followed me on Twitter last season, you got to see a little of it, but, it. um, but 
just generally speaking, like I'm not going to stick up for them or anything like that. But I, I, most of my friends were not J majors and they're pretty good people. And that's okay. That's enough for me. This is podcast. Ain't played nobody. It's a college football marriage of numbers and words. I don't have the read pulled up on my computer. So I'm doing this from memory. He is the robot, Bill Connolly. He's the inventor and proprietor of the S and P plus analytics system. He has written two books. He runs Football Study Hall. He runs that Rockham Nation about that school. Um, and my name is Stephen Godfrey. Um, I have uh, absolutely nothing to add right now, except that I have to write about WrestleMania this week. That's what I'm bringing to this podcast. Did you see that WrestleMania three oral history that one of the whatever New York or I mean, excuse me, whatever Detroit uh, newspaper did? I did not. Um, I would always recommend that if you're looking for premier wrestling coverage, to start with a man named Mr. David Shoemaker, who's also known as the Masked Man. Um, I think he works at the Ringer now. He was, um, when I was in the industry, he was writing about wrestling, and everybody read his stuff. Um, we are adherent on not diving too far off into other sports, and I do consider pro wrestling to be a sport, so we have to stay with, which stay in our lane, because I opened with a basketball mention. So you immediately... <laughs> Jump back in. You can either talk about. I'm going to give you. You have the floor, Bill. Do you want to go directly into the preview segment right now, or do you want to answer questions? Either way, we have to college football really hard right now. Go. You mean I can't talk about how the oral history impressed me because it told me that both Jake the Snake and Hillbilly Jim are still alive. Um, I have met and dined with both of those individuals. Now, please, please, God, I like I like the ditch. The ditch is fun. Uh, preview. Let's go preview. Western Michigan. Western Michigan. <laughs> yep. P.J. Fleck. Bill, I was on the phone with a coach about um, something completely unrelated. I know some of you hate it when I do the pronoun game, but I can't mention what. I do have some coach previews coming up in April. Um, got to talk about P.J. Fleck. Yep. And maybe this is a story idea. Um, there is a begrudging respect for what P.J. Fleck did at Western Michigan, while at the same time... Lord, I would hope so. Let me finish. Can I finish? No. At the same time, a, like, very loud in private coaching circles, like, um, issue with the the vocal rah-rah nature. There are... There's a growing contingent of young, loud coaches. Because this strays from the median and the mean, this bothers the industry a lot. This is the knock against P.J. Fleck. This was the knock against Tom Herman, who I think has really kind of toned it down in Texas. I mean, it's been like three months, so maybe I should bite my tongue. This was the knock against James Franklin. Uh, this was the knock against... Help me here. Um, there's one other individual I'm thinking of that I just blanked. Someone who got a job last coaching cycle. It'll come to me in a second. Don't worry about okay. it. Got it. If you are vocal... And you grab the bull by the horns in all the social media ways and, you know, all the stunts and all the goofiness. This pisses off the industry kind of more than I thought it was. It's a very much a hockey player thing. Like, that's why hockey players have no personality almost as an edict. (laughs) It's because if you have any character about you whatsoever, then someone who's, like, tougher than you and, you know, 6'6 on skates is going to, like try and break your collarbone because you said something interesting in an interview. I don't know why. I don't know what the Canadian like code is on that, um, but it's a thing. This is sort of a thing. So I was on I was talking to this coach. They are worried that if Fleck is successful at Minnesota, 
They might have to show personality. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. I think it's it, it, this feeds back into the, the real reason everyone was pissed at Harbaugh about the satellite cans. It has absolutely nothing to do with state borders or money or the good of the athlete or any. It was that people didn't want to do that work. <laughs> that that the, was the crux of that whole freaking go gophers. My God. Now, I know that this is a, a Western Michigan segment. But here's how I'm going to bring your preview up with me. You ready? Watch this. I'm going to like, I'm going to just Superman this and pull these two disparate topics together. Okay. One, you mentioned two shows ago that it was possible he might actually do something this year. I'm beginning to come around because I sat there and looked at the Big Ten in the West and the returning quarterbacks or lack thereof. It, it seems like it's possible. I still think... There's no way that they would beat like a confident Wisconsin team. But Western Michigan, how much of this stuff mm-hmm. to to sort of like backdoor and validate what Fleck does, how much of this immediately falls apart now that he's gone? Because you know, if it, they if they it, looked at Fleck. I'm giving you a really long intro. and then Yeah, you, seriously, I've tried to jump in. I, I, I thought you had prompted me like four times. Well, I, I have to earn my worth here. Tim Lester. Probably not going to be as enigmatic as, as PJ. <laughs> the bar's pretty high there, yeah. But he's a Western Michigan guy. Mm-hmm. He knows the area really well. He has he played at Western, right? Yes. And then he was also on staff, I think, briefly at one point. Um, can he retain any of that, or is it just going to implode? It's my turn, right? Go. Okay. Um... Uh, you know, it, it, he is different, and I, it's been kind of funny reading, you know, when I was prepping for today's Western Michigan preview, it was funny kind of reading a lot about you know, the quotes from the, the, the players as as far as, like, the vibe and everything, and everybody called it very refreshing. Uh, and, and these are all very coach-changey things, you know. Yep. Um, and so we can assign extra meaning to him. It might not mean anything at all, but it was kind of funny, everybody talking about how, you know, everybody's really excited and the, the vibe is different and everybody loves it and it's a change and everybody loves it and, and yada, yada. Uh, you, if you want to apply meaning to that, you can. All I know for sure about... <clears throat> Well, about Fleck and Lester is that Fleck had the most steady, stable, consistent team. One of the most stable, steady, consistent teams in college football last year. Okay. So for all the rah-rah stuff and the shtick and all of that, it worked like freaking gangbusters. It wasn't just that they were good. I mean, he he recruited like crazy, and and he had more just pure in terms of recruiting stars. He had more talent at his disposal than anybody else in the MAC, except for maybe Toledo. Uh, so that certainly helped, but he, after, after just burning the foundation, uh, you know, just tearing the building to the ground and, and starting over at the, at the foundation, they went eight, they went from one and 11 to eight wins, eight wins and 13 wins. And mm-hmm. they were a, con- a dramatically consistent team for a lo- for all of last year and portions of the two years before that. Um, so he can do whatever the hell he wants. It worked, it worked consistently. And so, you know, power to him for that. And if you want to, you know, um, the 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 people the kind of the quote unquote insiders who were kind of scoffing at Fleck, you know, well among other things being named for the Oregon job. Mm-hmm. Um, now they also scoff, scoffed at Willie Taggart being named for the uh, mentioned for the Oregon job, and you know, ha ha ha. But um, you know, tough. He figured out a, a way of coaching that fits his personality perfectly and works. So. Anybody else who's worried about him, well, you know, just beat him, beat him a lot, and and then you don't have to worry about it as much. 
but I think that's going to be pretty hard to do. I think he's a good coach. Uh, as far as Tim Lester goes, I, I'd kind of forgotten about this. Uh, like when I looked up his resume right when he first got named because I was excited about Western Michigan naming a former quarterback its head coach because now Charlie Batch can become Eastern Michigan head coach when Chris Creighton leaves. Um, and, of course, you know, Lefevre can become the next head coach at Central Michigan. But Western Michigan managed to hire a guy who, A, is a former star quarterback, B, um, has professional uh, quarterbacking experience, and C, has six years of head coaching experience. That's not supposed to work. Uh, you're not supposed to be able to do that. But they figured out how to do it. And they, they did it by, you know, professional quarterbacking experience was, you know, Chicago Enforcers and Memphis Explorers with an X and, you know, Arena League and XFL. And his head coaching experience was in Division Three. But still... He has a lot of experience, and he knows the area, and he won. He only had one losing season in six years at St. Joseph's and Elmhurst. So I kind of like this hire a lot, and he is going to inherit um, a, a good amount of talent. The, st- the, the passing game has to be completely redone. Uh, that Tom Flacco kid was awesome a couple years ago in random mop-up time or sub-in time, but – uh, they are starting over in the passing game. They've got a hell of a running game. They've got more running backs than like the rest of the Mac combined, pretty much. And their defense should be pretty good. So I don't. I, I think I'm going to pick Toledo to win the Mac because I pick Toledo to win the Mac every year. And one of these years, I'm going to be right. But I think Western Michigan is is, is still going to be a really really solid Mac team this year. And I, I really like the hire they made. Why is Toledo so consistent with the talent? It doesn't make sense. They have, I mean, they've done a really good job of recruiting. Like, Western Michigan wasn't recruiting like this before Fleck. Toledo was recruiting at, at a top two or three within the MAC level with Beckman and then with Campbell and now with Candle. Um, and you know, they just have, they have a good infrastructure. They have, a, I think, a better quote-unquote culture than most of the MAC does when it comes to, to winning. And, and it's funny, though, because... But I thought like, we would the, think more of, like, Northern Illinois as being, maybe having that step up. Well, they did too. I, I um, you know, yesterday's Northern Illinois preview reminded me that a lot of their problems the last two years have been that they went through th- four different quarterbacks two years ago and four different quarterbacks last year. They can't keep a quarterback healthy. Um, and so, and part of that is the system. I mean, obviously their quarterbacks run the ball, but still that's drastically bad luck. And so they still have a chance to kind of maintain that culture this year. If they can actually, whoever they pick behind, to, to line up behind center, if they can actually keep them upright, um, and, and healthy from game to game, they could be fine. But uh, Toledo's kind of, it's funny. I mean, I think in terms of consistency in the MAC, Toledo's the gold standard, and they have not won a MAC title since 2004. Uh, S&P, they were second in 2010 in the MAC, first in 2011, first in 2013, second, second, and first, and they have no MAC titles to show. They have no division titles to show for it. Toledo, I'll accept it. I like it. I read, I've been reading up on the MAC as you go. Um, I think I also really, really like Western Michigan, and I also think I really like Northern Illinois. What I'm trying to do here is maybe we should adopt a MAC team to differentiate because the big complaint I had on last week's show was it's all too vanilla, right? It's all too, like, there's just too much floating in the sameness. So we need to create, oh, 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 here's what we're going to do. Bill, take a note. Uh-huh. Let's put out some false information about disparaging remarks between coaching staffs. I like that. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. Okay. We're going to get, let's go like, let's take two of the top four teams in the league. All right. I'm whispering now so no one else hears us. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's just me and you. Let's get some insults going. 
maybe like a, like a modern wrap beef, something on Instagram. I think with the Mac, you could probably get away with just sliding in some sort of fake like coaching account, and they wouldn't know for a couple of weeks long enough for other players to pick up on it. All right? No one has to get shot. It doesn't have to be validated. But we can get this going for like two or three weeks. We do it the right way. ESPN's ratings go up. All right? They hire us to pick the games. We sit back. We cash in. Thoughts? Um... No? I'm not completely sure I followed all that logic, but sure. Yeah, let's do it. It needs a narrative. That sounded like, you know, I don't even watch the, and then I don't even look. I don't even watch the NBA, but I know who doesn't like each other. Right? That's why I don't watch a lot of MMA because it's actual normal like a like a sport, a competition, but in wrestling they give you stories. Okay. What I'm saying is the Mac needs a dose of WWE. Your thoughts? Um, I, yeah. I don't think Rod Carey is your man for this. <sighs> uh, I everything myself. I don't um, think uh, Jason Candle is your man for this. Which I'm, I'm really at this point. I'm just hoping in tomorrow's preview, I don't, I don't call him Jason Candor like 14 times. You might. Um, um, Bill, you wrap up with Toledo this week, and yes. then where do we head next? Tell the good people where we head. Uh, next. Toledo Thursday, the Mac Power Rankings on Friday, and also the first Mountain West preview, which is Nevada on Friday. Hello! Um, you want to go ahead and talk about Nevada for a second? Because I just yeah, have... actually, this can lead into sort of lead into a, a question that I want to yeah. a, a reader question that I was going to mention. By the way, uh, we also remember to take questions off of the podcast name played nobody page on SB Nation in the comments section. Again, we are building a community. I don't know what that means, but internet people tell me to say it okay so we're going to start there and then we're going to go to the twitter solicitation that we put up before we record it beal the yes. pistol probably in the parlance now i feel like most people know what the pistol is or i think most people know the, what the word pistol connotates i don't know if they uh-huh. could draw you up the pistol necessarily if you ask them to on a board but the pistol is synonymous with the university of nevada by all indications yes. the university of nevada is not going to be running the pistol anymore they're not going to be running the ball near as much. No, not, you don't hire Jay Norvell to run the pistol now. And you also don't hire a offensive coordinator with the last name Mummy That's to right. run the ball. So, tell me about Nevada. Uh, they were terrible last year. That's uh that's the main piece that I can they 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 actually won like five games uh with some luck, but they were a very very bad team. They've been a bad team for a couple of years now. Um and so I was kind of glad in a, I mean, I have nothing against Polian, uh, the head coach, but I was kind of glad they went ahead and moved on because the win total was kind of disguising how bad they had become. Uh, the win total wasn't good, but it was still um, – they were worse than their win total, and they weren't. it didn't really look like they were going to get any better. So, yeah, I, I like that, yeah. they made the, that they made the change. I don't, I don't think all that highly of Jay Norvell. Um, I, I thought oh. he was a little bit over, overrated as, a, as an assistant at Oklahoma and Texas. I – I feel like I mean, we have our beef that I was looking for. Go on. Okay, well, it has nothing to do with the Mac, and it's not a personal grudge by any means. I just didn't really – I was never that blown away by him. CC um, so Coach Nevada.in.edu. My co-host wants That's to right. fight you. The, the Twitter uh, – the little Twitter link that will go up on Friday for the Nevada preview is, why in the world did Nevada hire a terrible coach as their head coach? Um – 
No, but I mean, in terms of the moves he made, obviously, if you want to ingratiate yourself with me, hiring an offensive coordinator with the last name of Mummy is not a bad place to start. Uh-oh. I got David Cornwell, the Alabama transfer, um, and I got him for a couple of years because uh, he's a he's a grad transfer who's only a junior. Uh, I don't know if they have any receivers. They signed a ton of them, uh, which is not which is not necessarily a good sign for your coming season because it means you needed a ton of them. Um, and, and they return a lot on defense and the defense wasn't all that good last year. So I, I mean, I, I, I think the moves he's made so far make a lot of sense, but I still don't really expect very much in Nevada out of the gates here, but it, it does. We're going to parlay that into a question from email. We actually got a couple of UNLV questions because I love our readers, uh, listeners, uh, our friend Barry on email says, hopefully a simple question. Does the Raiders move to Vegas help or hinder the Mountain West? And does it change the dynamic between Nevada and UNLV? Mm. Um, well, first off, our friend the dynamic, first off, the dynamic between UNLV and Nevada is, is he, is he talking about the, the history of the rivalry and Nevada being more dominant? I, I mean, I'm guessing, yeah, just the, 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 per, the rivalry in general. How does it change the rivalry? I got general? you. Okay. And then, you know, to tie that into a question from last year's SB Nation thread, somebody mentioned, you know, is this a good time to talk about UNLV being a player in Pac-12 realignment scenarios? So um, That's a lot. Um, Okay. Uh, When does UNLV – UNLV probably falls, what, somewhat close to Nevada in your preview. Although you kind of like them. You may be bullish on them. Well, I know, but this is based on last year's rankings. Uh, Wednesday. So it'll go up right before next week's show. I always try and undercut when Bill previews teams. <laughs> I don't know if anyone notices this. I don't know if I should just if I should telegraph my joke, but I've been doing it to you for as long as I've had this podcast. I don't know how many times you've said I go by last year's rankings every time I ask, but every time I do, you say it. And I love you. I will, I will continue to say it. I love you. Um, you and I being a player in Pac-12 realignment scenarios. Uh, I guess. Uh, I, I, Let's let's all tap the brakes on the idea that the Raiders coming to town is going to make sports wonderful. Um, that's not necessarily a thing, everybody. Um, what? Okay, here's what Las Vegas has going for it: uh, travel destination, um, gaming, right, entertainment. How do those things parlay into college athletics? Not great, not great, um, because the growth of the area has. Um, spilled out into the actual structure of the city and they've built a population around it and they've built, um, I mean, infrastructure and it's become a, a DMA and a sizable market that helps. Okay. I think that especially helps in the West where the PAC 12 network is, um, at best a nebulous concept. So that's, that's good. Um, man, this would be the Rutger, Rutgers, anyone ever record. This would make the Big Ten's TV market grab look modest and austere by comparison <laughs> if the Pac-12 put UNLV football in their league. Um, that would be bold. My one roundabout way of saying it helps, the Raiders help, is, is the, here, here's the logic. A, I think Tony Sanchez is a hell of a – I think he's doing a hell of a job at UNLV, and I, I think we'll start to see it in the win totals soon. I could okay. be completely absurdly wrong about that, but I think I, I think I'm right. Um, so a, there's that. B, they now get to. I, I'm never. I, I don't love the the whole college teams playing in a half empty pro stadium kind of arrangement most of the time. Mm-hmm. But for UNLV, but for UNLV, they're already playing off campus at Sam Boyd Stadium, which all I really knew about Sam Boyd Stadium in college was that is where Grateful Dead played a lot of shows. 
Um, so that's still, I mean, it's, it, they're going to be playing in a more empty stadium, but I still think that's an upgrade. If they were moving, this is like a Miami situation where they were moving from an on-campus stadium across town to a, a cavernous thing they can't fill, then that's not good. But I think this is still a, a, a gain for them. So if you've already, if you're already improving and now you got a little extra boost, add that to the simple fact that PAC 12 needs somebody to be awesome in a market that they can pretend helps them. Um, because clearly that, I mean, Boise state doesn't help them. Boise state's whole, you know, former community college thing doesn't help them, even though, um, I mean, no offense to my friends from Arizona, but Arizona and Arizona state are in the PAC 12. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's a little overrated, but yeah, they, the PAC 12 just needs somebody to basically step up and seize the bit, basically step up and say, we're awesome. And we're in a market that you can pretend helps you. So let's do this. And, so- and UNLV and technically do that so can san diego state but you know they they just need to do it my advice if you're building a pac-12 expansion and conspiracy theory you take this for what it's worth listen hawaii and shanghai ah you're not far off when it comes to larry scott and it comes to this conference and you are looking kind of as a like a little sort of hazy mark in the distance at the destruction of the big 12 I think we're six years out before we're probably five before the the bidding starts think bigger dream bigger um las vegas is a great promising television market i think the pac-12 is going to be judicious uh they're going to sit back and evaluate how the nhl and the nfl do in that market before they they make what, what's kind of a fool's grab right now at a university that no one else is looking at okay yeah um, if you're looking for Pac-12 expansion, I would look less at San Diego State and UNLV as I would more um, the Pacific Rim, i.e. Hawaii. Yeah. Um, or I would go and look at who from the Big 12 creates a true advantage for them and who do you think they could actually get. I'm not trying to lead you one way or the other. I'm just saying that's that's the direction in which they're going to look. I think if the Pac-12 is looking at going east... I think that if Houston finds out that UNLV is a candidate, <laughs> Houston will flood the lane. Yeah. I can tell you that as a reporter. Um, so there's that. Um, we're all over the map because there's a big UNLV question. and big. Okay, so the UNLV-Nevada rivalry. Um, oh, yeah, that, that where we started with this, yes. I don't think the Raiders affect anything right away because I don't think – this is just it's so funny to watch the way NFL business moves are covered because the majority of the media cheerleads it I don't necessarily know what this is going to do for Las Vegas I'm serious I'm not I'm, this is not a, I mean full stop like so you're gonna pay a ton of money for the stadium that looks really awesome in the cool 3d thing that we saw and then you're going to have an NFL team and you're going to have eight games a year, and you're going to have two preseason games a year. So you're going to have ten events. Um, I know people think, well, this way they can start bidding on larger events like the college football playoff or, um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, maybe try and lure a better bowl. Yeah, to some degree. And, and in other markets, like I live in Nashville where 
there is a little bit of quiet frustration at the condition of the current stadium in Nissan and, and just the unfortunate luck of having kind of a Midwestern winter for like two months a year. And the combination of those things means that Nashville is landing all these major events. They're never going to get the college football playoff. They're not going to put it outdoors in Nashville on New Year's Eve. They're just not going to do that. Um, they're going to go to any number of better markets that make more sense. Um, Vegas is just, I mean, this is the city too busy to care almost. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't understand how this is going to drastically change anything for the people who are living and residing in, in Las Vegas and going to school at UNLV and who care at all about UNLV athletics. I don't see the connection right now. Now, if someone wants to show me different, that's great. But I've never seen this before. Can you name another time, Bill, in which an NFL move or any really anything the NFL has done in terms of a market shift has benefited a college team around it. This just, I don't want to soapbox this, but this goes back to the the concept that an NFL franchise is good for a city, period. It's not. I'm trying to think of it. Like, I mean, I, don't, I mean, maybe there was some sort of, um, when the Rams, well, when the NFL teams left Los Angeles, maybe, I mean, around that time, neither UCLA or nor USC really had a sack together. UCLA actually kind of did. Um, but I mean, maybe it didn't really help them in any regard. Um, but that was a team leaving, not a team coming either way. So no, I mean, I, I don't think there's any just big symbolic thing here. I just, if it makes a good coach like 5% more likely to succeed because he can sell a better stadium than he had before, uh, even a big one that they won't fill, then it yes, helps, yeah, I, and, and only, I think it only helps that little bit. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing for the coach, the stadium sell. No, I can't hurt. It, I mean, unless I guess, yeah. the stadium cell comes with them being able to sign, and, and you talk about Tony Sanchez, who he's doing yeoman's work out there. I mean, they have a lot to do. The more I read about UNLV, the more interested I am in them. Um, you know, he was. By the way, if you don't know this, he was head coach at Bishop Gorman before he had that job. And if you don't know what Bishop Gorman is, Google it. It was. I mean, it's what what one of the premier high school football powers in the West. Um, but uh, Texas football fans can tell you that, that doesn't translate. Not always. Sometimes it does. Sometimes you're Todd Dodge. Yeah. Well, when um, they when they hired him, uh, my thought was, man, I usually hate it when they hire when a school hires a high school coach. But I don't know what else the what the hell else would work at UNLV. So yeah. go for it. Uh, exactly. And, and again, they've gone in three years now. That like the last, I, I think they've gotten their act together a little bit. The the results really haven't changed all that much. I mean, they won four games last year as opposed to two. But uh, he, I mean, he uh, that that was a crater of a depth chart that he inherited, and he was able to kind of st- to hold steady a little bit and recruit pretty well. So I think, yeah, if he's going to do something, we're going to start to see it this fall. But you know, I okay. again, I could be completely wrong here. Nevada, man, we got really we're really in the weeds on Nevada and you. Hey, we're at almost forty. We're at almost forty damn minutes, by the way. I know we have so many questions to get through. Okay, here's the deal. Um, Nevada's going to be bad for a while. Uh, it's really really hard to go to air raid in the first year. Um, because your skill position guy, it's just like when you do the reverse, when you go from a spread offense or an air raid offense back into any kind of like power or anything that's slower, anything that's a little bit more physical, your line suffers greatly for it. It takes two years to recruit it. The same thing's going to happen here, except it's going to be on the outside. You're going to have to find people who can work that system, and it's going to take a little while for Nevada to recruit them in the end. Better? And they lost like four of their top six receivers from last year, so that's not going to help either. Okay. um, It really might be that Alabama transfer thrown to a ton of freshmen. We have to start favoring our questions that we get in our community. If you want to be part of the community, you go to SBNation.com. You look for the podcast name Play Nobody Entry. We put them up on our tweeters. 
um, and then you get in there in the comment section. We will talk to you. You get to interact with Z-grade internet sports celebrities like us. Um, we have a question here. Um, man, we're just going to live directly on point and directly on brand today. Chester L. asks about Temple. Bill, you want to talk about Temple? Temple's been to the AAC Championship in both years of its existence. Recruiting was terrible this year, but I'm always told to ignore the first class because there wasn't enough time to work on it. How much will Temple drop this year with a new coach, bad recruiting class, etc.? How much potential does Temple have to sustain, sustain success? I feel like now that the administration finally cares about football, there's a lot of potential. Thoughts? Bill? Well, speaking of, of playing an NFL stadium uh, pretty far from campus, uh, I mean, they'll, it all depends on how good Jeff Collins is. You know, the, I think the resources are for the AAC pretty solid. Um, they, you know, they can recruit relatively well there. They can recruit upper half of the, the AAC. We've seen that they can win games. They had a tremendous team the last couple of years. So sure. I mean, they, if Jeff Collins is a good hire, they will do fine. And if he's a great hire, then they'll win another couple of ACs and then they'll leave. But you know, for, for where they are in the, in the college football universe right now, if they keep making good hires, they'll be just fine. I, I, it's really hard to, I know we go, off of the tracks a little bit when it comes to like the the uniqueness of of each school but i think what we've seen from temple is simply that they you can win games there if you make good hires and commit i think they've start they've committed to some degree and now we'll see if jeff collins is any good yeah a couple of things here uh yeah the recruiting class was down a little bit but it was very much a tradition a transition year sorry by the numbers um the thing that jumps out to me about Collins' coaching staff is that it's not what I expected it to be, which was, hey, let's pluck guys that you've known going through the SEC at Mississippi State in Florida. It's new, like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware guys, people who know the area extremely well. I think he kept one or two people off of um, Matt Rule's staff. It, it makes sense for him from a recruiting perspective. They're going to change their identity a little bit, but not much. I mean, I think if anything, you're going to see a bigger difference on defense. They're not going to come out and do anything on offense. And this is – Collins told me this. Uh, Temple's going to be part of the previous series in April. Um, it's not uh, – they're not going to reinvent the wheel on offense. I mean, it's way more interesting to talk about what Rule's going to do at Baylor. Collins is going to try and keep it status quo. I don't think that they're necessarily – they had a subpar transition class. That's going to happen when you lose a coach to the Power Five. I don't think they're really going to change much. And so, therefore, I think theoretically they're going to be fine. And also, he coaches a lot like Rule. He's, you know, they're friends with each other. It's just not much of a change to me. Um, Bill? I, I mean, yeah, it was kind of an iffy class, in term, but part of that was that they only had 18 commits. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they're fine. Their offense wasn't even there very good the last couple of years. They had a, they, it was explosive but not very consistent, so the bar's not very high in that regard. P.L. Bernstein asks, um, my question, how can Miami return to its former glory? What will it take? Man, big question. Um, it's off-brand for this podcast for me to be con- so concise. Hey, real quick. Concise questions get read, okay? Uh, but I'm on my iPad in a hurry. Man, I type on my iPad all the time. I hate it. Uh, please feel free to wind your way through the usual suspects. Off-campus stadium, local university alumni culture, recruiting advantages and disadvantages, conference rivals, scheduling, and, of course, money. This was my favorite program growing up. I'd love to see the swagger come back to the U. Um, P.O. Bernstein, I think they're doing everything that they're supposed to be doing right now. The stadium situation is not going to change, um, unfortunately. You would need a groundswell of private money in a, uh, that has probably passed through the University of Miami but has heretofore yeah. not been interested in spending their money at the University of Miami to create some sort of on-campus stadium. 
my here's what I this conversation always winds back around when I talk to Florida Florida State people about oh they play a pro, pro player da, da da the Miami we grew up on Bill was a city's team and it was yeah. very pro in that in that way so the same way that people talk about Chicago and the Cubs or a city and its team and you can pick out any sport on the pro level that was the way the city of Miami em- embraced the Canes and I think even in all those thirty for thirties and all the books and stories. That kind of goes that, – that gets glossed over because you're talking about Miami, the city as a character, and then the, the individual players being so flamboyant. The city and the school matched in a way that you only see – like it was like the Steel Curtain 70s thing with Pittsburgh. <laughs> I don't know. My point is this. Let's say they get a bunch of money together, Bill, and they build a 45,000-seat stadium at Coral Gables. I think that would suck. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the or- or the Orange Bowl wasn't. Um, I mean, I can't remember how far it is from like the main part of campus, but it's not. It wasn't tied. It's not. To it, it's not I nearly think. as far away as as the. Um, it's called Hard Rock right, Stadium. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It, yeah, this is a completely different situation. But regardless, yeah, they 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 won all those games. I I, I I'm out of creative answers. Mark, they you know if you, step one is make a good hire, they made a good hire. Mark mm-hmm. Rick then made a, at least a couple of awesome defensive hires in Manny Diaz and Craig Kuligowski, who, who uh, once I saw that Diaz had been hired, once I saw that Kuligowski had, had been hired, it clicked that, holy crap, those two are going to work really well together. They improved from 52nd to 13th in defensive S&P+. Plus. They improved from 47th overall to 14th in S&P+. Plus. Um, I, so I think there's a two-part answer here from Miami being Miami again because you're not going to change the stadium situation anytime soon. Number one... Make a good hire. They did. Number two, beat freaking Florida State. <laughs> Get that damn monkey off your back because that's they were an awesome team last year. They were awesome, and then they blew the game in the fourth quarter against Florida State, and then they fell into a three-week funk after that, and then they were awesome again. So beat Florida State. See what happens. Try it out. See if it, uh, if it treats you well because I think it might. So, um, I mean, ugh. it's really hard to answer that question without going back into, like, really rote answers, but – uh, anyways, thanks, P.L. Bernstein. You were the first person on the uh, comment section, so I'm an inactive PAPN law now. If you're first in the comment section, we put it up. We will read your question guaranteed, even if we've answered it a thousand times. Please don't ask us about relegation. Bill will talk for 30 minutes, and I'll pass out. Um, right, that's coming, by the way. I know. So, well, someone just asked, and I'm, I, I just saw that pop up on the question. I'm like, we're going to do it again? Should we just replay the time that we answered that six other times? I love you all, but come on, let's, let's diversify. Uh, one more to the comment section before we go. Twitter rapid fire, Bill. Uh, John McElhaney, a uh, uh, friend of the uh, – yeah, yeah, I met yeah. John. I met John at Clemson. Yeah. Uh, on penalties, you ended the last episode with a chat about the correlation between flags and team quality. At what point can personal foul penalties be considered completely irrelevant to team quality? Uh, Very quickly. Immediate, immediately. Going off of my team's <laughs> – uh, going off of my teams of expertise, I know that Clemson was one of the most penalized teams in the country, especially when it came to that's crazy. Especially when it came to pass interference and defensive holding, where it ranked last in the country in avoiding said penalties. But they won the national title regardless. This is a fact. They did. Uh, are the false start, snap, delay of game, illegal formation, etc., penalties the only penalties that correlate with overall team quality? I think I can answer this question, Bill. Yes. I've never considered this hypothesis before, but when I think of it, and I'm immediately reminded of Louisville's series of false starts in Death Valley, it seems like they were a warning sign to me as an indicator of how bad the O-line turned out to be true. Uh, he says, could be confirmation bias. I think it is. 
Uh, love the show. Yeah. Love the show as always. Uh, uh, apologize for the grammar. I'm typing this on my phone from yeah. a bar in rural Scotland. Go drink in rural Scotland. Don't talk to a podcast in America. I mailed him a book in rural Scotland a couple weeks ago. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, Hi, John. Um, okay, so Bill can answer this on like an intelligent in an intelligent manner, but I can just tell you anecdotally, Bill. Uh, I spent last season doing the uh, the replay story and talked to the Pac-12 refs a lot. Talked to other refs in other leagues a lot. They're never going to ever sort of gossip about, or at least on the record, about other leagues and how they do things. But I, I will say this: like you watch games with refs, Bill, they are really subjective about how certain penalties are called, and then there's almost a universal agreement on how other penalties are called. So I think it's safe to say that, yeah, if if you get called for false start, you probably had a false start, right? They tend to not screw those up. Um, that also tends to be a symptom of a problem that you're having in, in practice, right, with your, with your snap counts. Uh, same goes for illegal formation. Uh, I think same goes for offsides and that kind of stuff. They have a huge issue, and I do believe there's still a gulf that exists on what constitutes personal fouls, especially after the whistle or as the play is ending. And then defensive holding is one that just, to me, oh, God, I'm having a Super Bowl flashback. Come here. Give me a hug. Hold me. Give me a spoon to bite down on. Um, Defensive holding is incredibly subjective, even at the pro level. We ran that drive back for a touchdown, so that's okay. I'm just going to hang on. Ha! Um, Defensive holding is incredibly subjective still amongst really, really good crews. So I think John is completely onto something. I mean, yeah, so, I I mean, you can read his question in a couple of different ways, but I think um, a lot of this goes back to what I said last week, and that, yeah, the procedural versus the quote-unquote penalties of aggression. I was talking about, he he was kind of looking at that second part from a different angle, like instead of our personal fouls, uh, reflections of your overall quality, which they're not, they can maybe in a, in a roundabout way help to cause procedural penalties from your opponent. Um, if your opponent has, you know, is, is particularly worried about uh, how aggressive you're being or things like that. I, I still, I always, um, I remember that, that awful 2004 Missouri Troy game. Uh, I remember, um, Missouri's red shirt freshman left tackle committing like four false starts going against DeMarcus Ware. Uh, because he was just freaking overwhelmed. And so that, <laughs> that, that was kind of a, I mean, he didn't even, where didn't even have any like um, uh, personal fouls. I don't think in that game, at least none that I remember, but it was still like, it, it was like defensive quality uh, creating those procedural penalties. So yeah, there might be something there. Um, but, uh, but again, I mean, it's because I, because I can't separate those out. I don't use them in uh, S and P but I do think I, I don't necessarily need to because I do think that those things are reflected in other areas. If you're committing a lot of false starts, that means you've got problems that are probably reflected in, like, success rate, too, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, let's jump into the Twitter questions real fast. We do have one glaring omission that dates back to our GoFundMe campaign. We're going to close the show that way. Does that sound good, Bill? Yeah. Uh, our friend Billy Gamilla asks, since I'm on the topic, which of Arkansas's early 2000s multi-OT games is the best? The answer is Ole Miss. I was there. Yeah. It oh, is. Yeah. And it honestly is um, because it does end with a befuddling play call from David Cutcliffe. And it was a it was something that got brought up a lot when he got fired from Ole Miss. Yeah, fired guy because of a play. Um, no, yeah, that was, nobody that, that likes was also... that firing. It's amazing even all these years later. I... Um... 
Well, you know, nobody likes reruns. And so, yeah, the original, that was, that was either the original or like the second one of the bunch. Plus it was the longest. So yeah, you always, uh, uh, you always look the most fondly on that one, I think. Um, uh, at D U R M soccer dude, uh, which position disappears first fullback or I don't know, punter. Uh, the answer is kick returner. Um, Ooh, good answer. Good answer. I was going to say gunner, but it's the same, it's the same idea. Right. Uh, our friend Steve Cavendish. When does the assistant coach carousel stop? Is a staff ever completely locked down before the pros set their staffs? No, I've, um, I've, I know of people right now that are still jockeying for jobs. Um, even with the whole extra additional assistant thing that's going around. Uh, the short answer on that is the the analyst world now um, has created a yeah. basically a 12-month job fair. It really, like... And also you have the things that happen. You have the coaches with family issues or they get a DUI and then there's a hiccup. And, you know, with the size of staffs now and the way that GAs are sort of unpaid staffers anyway it, there's guys constantly moving up and moving down i mean i don't think you would see in june like running backs coach from like memphis just okay guys i'm, I'm going to clemson like that necessarily right. won't happen in certain parts of the year but as as far as looking at a staff and nailing it down and saying the this is the exact staff from here on out through the season no it's just it's so it's a long now. tail it's a long tail. It's 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 mostly over, but it's never all the way over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at USFWEO, um, he said, "What happened with your Babers report? Discussion of missing Tiger while in the shower made me think of it. Curious. I think what uh, USFWEO is asking about is way back when we started this podcast. I had a miss in coaching reporting, and I came on here, <laughs> and I think it was probably the most emo episode ever. But I really just felt. I mean, I ate the curb. Um, I had reported Babers to UCF um, based on." Some bad, what turned out to be bad sourcing. Um, what can I talk about on the show about that? Um, so yeah, I, so um, the confirmation on Tiger, I missed because I got in the shower and I was off. And I think someone involved with the search with the search group on the Oregon side had leaked it out to ESPN. Um, whereas like the people that I was working with on that story were maybe a second behind anyway. And then I was in the bathroom getting ready because I had to be on post at West Point that day. Uh, with Babers, I got bad information that was put out on purpose, um, and my source was not as well-sourced as I had trust in the source to be, and that is journalism in a nutshell. you gotta be, um, you got to be really, really confident in the people that you get information from, especially on background or off the record. So it happens to everybody at some point in their career. Um, not necessarily a fireable offense. We just sort of scrubbed it and then re-reported it, um, and it's it's good though. It's definitely I tell you this, um, and I talked I've talked to Bill about this. And I've certainly talked to Jason about it. Jason Kirk, our college football editor. It I wear Dino Babers to UCF as a as a sort of a joke, but also is very like a real scarlet letter every higher fire season, which now is like from Halloween until you know signing day. Um, I yeah, you, you don't ever want to miss, but if you do, you learn from it. You get over it. Also, no one cared. That was the big thing I remember. Like, yeah. Just beating myself up and people like, do you really think anyone else in the world, like, do you think people are gathering up a lynch mob? They're not. I had absolutely completely forgot about it. And I think in our Slack room, like uh, five minutes later, we're like, dude, get, move on. It's over. Well, you know, it's, it's, it, but it's an integrity based thing. And, and look, I know several national reporters that, that got stroked on one thing in particular. I'm not going to point it out because it's disrespectful of me to do that. Um, and I'm not, I don't want to be malicious, even if I don't care for some of these people like they got whiffed on a particular hire this year and i didn't and sometimes you're oh, 
It's like good. It's like good Kathy Matea song. Sometimes you're the windshield. Sometimes you're the bug. There you go. Um, I um, I under I sort of understand about the t- integrity thing though because I will be annoyed about yesterday's Northern Illinois preview for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, because a it was March 24th when I put the NIU preview together. I try to work ahead a few days, not so far ahead that that too many roster changes will happen or anything, but just so that I don't that I'm not pressed for time immediately. Uh, so like yeah, whatever that was, Friday, Saturday morning, I put this t- preview together. They had a quarterback named Anthony Maddie, who was a candidate for a sixth year. By all, from everything I could tell, it made perfect sense that he would get a sixth year. From what I was able to read on the internet, it seemed like they were pretty optimistic. Uh, but the well, and uh, when I was putting that preview together, he was listed on the roster. So I took those things as as the only confirmation I was ever going to get because report, uh, writing these things about mid majors. It's kind of hard sometimes because you have to make some inferences. I took that to mean Maddie was gonna had gotten his sixth year because it was March twenty fourth, and if they were gonna turn him down, they would have done it by then. And he was on the roster, so hey, Maddie's coming back, and that that's that's a boon for this NIU offense. Later that day, on the twenty fourth, it came out that he had been denied. Um, so first of all, screw the NCAA because that's absolutely ridic- it's ridiculous that he didn't get one, and it's ridiculous that they waited until March 24th after spring football had started for him to, to, to deny him. Uh, and B, screw me because I took an inference there that was incorrect, and it annoys me. Anyway, moving on. At Jog Martin says, I'm a Vanderbilt fan. Help? Uh, why? I think you're actually in a better position than you realize. The defense is getting better year by year. Your cross, your permanent cross division rival, Ole Miss, might get the modern death penalty. Um, the idea of Vanderbilt being in bowls consistently is not far fetched anymore under Derek Mason. I mean, they had some embarrassing moments, no doubt, during the building process, but I think he may have something sustainable there. Yeah, I don't really, but it's fine. I mean, again, sustainable. I know, I know what you're saying. I know, we've had this Vanderbilt conversation. sliding scale. Are they going to win the East? No. Have they been completely inept on offense to the point where you're genuinely concerned that they don't have a coach on offense? Yes. Um, uh, Sergeant Sparty at SGT Sparty asks, based on, Godfrey, uh, based on Godfrey's take on the staff and Bill's projections, A, is Army on the rise? And B, what's the ceiling? Hashtag beat Navy. Um, thank you, uh, Sergeant Sparty, and thank you for your service. And I like your avatar photo, which is uh, himself in fatigues uh, with Sparty, uh, the mascot. I like Army's chances the next three years a lot better than I like Michigan State's. How about that? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, they got the stigma. I obviously wrote a lot about that. They they got rid of the whole monkey on their back with the Navy thing. So now even if they turn around and lose in 2017, it doesn't matter because the streak is over. And honestly, at this very moment, Navy is still the superior program because of the system they've established. But everything else, like there's so much cutting room floor stuff on Army Navy that we're we're gonna try and reheat um, for Army Navy Week next year. We're gonna do we're gonna revisit that story and kind of do a version 1.5. I would love to go to Annapolis and talk to those guys. Army is building up the things that it took Navy five to ten years to do. Um, they're definitely on the rise. I think th- if there is, um, Bill, how many times have we talked about? BYU, it's not going to sustain. It's not going to sustain. You can't do it. You know, you have to join a conference or die, right? It is so smart that Army is not in a conference right now. It is so smart that they are not in Conference USA. It makes so much sense to me, Um, especially having been up there and talking to their coaches, looking at competition levels, and the way that they have to cycle through talent and sometimes lose talent. It makes sense to have two FCS teams on your schedule every year. It makes sense to play schools like Fordham. 
Um, but as they get better and better, I think people are going to say, oh, well, you know, maybe Army should join the AAC. I, I don't know if that's the right move for them in the long term. Right now, it's genius that they're not. Um, I really like them. But again, yeah, if you're an Army I, fan and a Michigan State fan, I think Army's your ticket out. Um, technically, Army's uh, ceiling is Navy. But uh, yeah. and Navy ceiling has been pretty high, but they are behind. They do still have some catching up to do. Navy has built a an infrastructure. They've built a long term model for success, and Army has to now continue to do it. At Chad Floyd, UNC now has four graduate transfers coming in. That's amazing. Wow. Uh, patch for 2017, yes, but is there a model to plugging these guys in sustainably? I think one of the most amazing things that I you know in talking to coaches through the years. Every coach has a completely different philosophy on transfers. It's 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 really cool to you know to find this point where and like technically both sides are right. I still remember like um, even like Doug Williams. Now he's when I talked to him about the Grambling thing last year, he was a little miffed at the way he was treated by Grambling. So he might have a kind of a contrarian take by nature, but he was you know uh, the new guy Fobbs brought in like um, uh, the old Miss quarterback last year and. Uh, he's brought in some transfers and it worked. I mean, they won the celebration bowl there. They were a strong, uh, swack team. Uh, but it, Williams was like, Oh, but you can't, you know, you can't establish a culture when, when you have a bunch of guys coming in from elsewhere, you can't build them over five years. And he's right. But Fobbs was clearly right to do it because it worked. Kincaid. That's his name. Um, Devante Kincaid. Yeah. And so, it, everybody's right when it comes to transfers. I think it basically, if you, if you think it works for you and then you do it and it works great. If you don't think it works for you and you don't do it, you can still go win games. It is a, it is a patch, which means you probably have to put another patch on soon. But if you can do that, um, you know, if, if, you know, either you, it, it leaves you, it, it means you can't err as much with your freshman recruits. Because you need those guys to develop so that you don't have to continue doing graduate transfers every year. But fine. I mean, if, if you, if they fit into your culture and uh, to whatever degree, and there's still leadership from the guys who have been there and know what's supposed to happen, then great. I don't see why it wouldn't work. Um, At USF WEO followed up as we were recording this and says, I have faith in you. So I know something weird happened there. Curious (laughs) about the mechanics of the situation. He's still talking about Babers, the UCF thing. Um, Okay, USFWEO, here's the deal. I think that there was purposeful misinformation put out by the people making the hire of uh, a Frost to UCF, and I think that other people in that zone that picked up on that information and then gave it to reporters like me, I think it was a misdirection. And I think that uh, the, the people I was sourced through in the, on that hire fell for that. I don't use them as sources anymore. Um, I'm now going to um, beat my chest and scream for 20 minutes. Um uh, I like the fact that he hadn't gotten a response from you in 50 minutes. Uh, this is how I'm imagining it. Like, he started worrying that he offended you, so he went to clarify. I don't know if that's what happened at all. At Dr. Drug Free, what are your thoughts on a semi-pro league for college-age players as an alternative college football? Bring it on. Absolutely no problem. Yeah, yeah, I, think, yeah. Uh, I think it fills a gap very nicely uh, for a certain talent base that is just not going to function in some of the rigmarole the NCAA makes you go through. It doesn't want to, yeah. Uh, um, and I have no uh, yeah. problem with that. It might have an effect on like quality of college football or whatever, but it might not. We have no idea. But from a pure fairness standpoint, it's probably something that should happen. Uh, man, we're staying. We're staying baby blue. Um, at Andy underscore Davenport underscore. Uh, my school has hitched its fate to a former LSU QB. How terrified, excited should I be? I think it's awesome. I think that actually could be really fun. I don't think he. I think Harris. Uh, Harris still had the stain of a Les Miles controlled offense on him, and I do think that. Uh, I really like Larry Fedora as a coach, and I think they could do something interesting. I don't want to commit to anything further than that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, they need a different identity because they are uh, that passing game is going to take a, to- a total reset. But he could be an interesting change in identity for him. Uh, uh, at friendly fire instead of an R and friendly, it's a W. Um, how far are we away from twenty team super conferences? Um, you would need a series of dominoes. It's not just going to be a Big Twelve implosion there because if you do the math, that won't work out. Um, also, real quick, maybe just for edification. If the Big 12 goes, I don't know if all of – and we just have a, like a four-team power category. I, I don't know if all of the – it's 10 right now, Bill, right? Yeah, 10 teams in the Big 12 right now would necessarily get a bid to the other four conferences. Right. So one of the things that I've um, – one of the things I reported on last year during this was that there was sort of a high amount of irony with like Iowa State and Oklahoma State and – like Kansas right. and Kansas State really not wanting to deal with Houston because they thought Houston could surpass them in football. But Houston could have also probably, like adding Houston-Cincinnati could have saved the conference and kept them as a power program for 15 more years. So I don't know if you're Iowa State and the Big 12 falls apart, the Big 10 is not calling you. So I don't know where you're going. The Pac-12 yep. is not, the Pac-12 is not going to call you either. Um, at Saunders 45 how do we subscribe via your mom Um, well ask yours she'll know you can get the next one at air engine vans uh, what will Mike Riley's legacy be in 10 years Um, Uh, this is really interesting because this goes back to an AAC favorite topic and that is um why did Nebraska hire Diaco? That culturally may not fit too well. <laughs> well, I mean, they needed improvement on defense, and he's still regarded as a good defensive coordinator. I mean, I think that's the the, the most direct answer. I am he's curious. A strange cat, though, man. Well, he is, um, and I. That's why I enjoy him. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, like when I talked to him for that rebuild piece a few years ago, uh, you know, he was, he would randomly take an extremely innocuous question and make it combative. And then other times he was like, and I got 30 seconds later, he was super nice. Um, So it was a really interesting half hour conversation, but um, I, uh, you know, one, so Ian Boyd at football study hall wrote a piece a while back about, uh, about Wisconsin's defense, about their take on the three, four, why it's been so successful. Uh, and when he wrote that, uh, three or four Nebraska fans responded to it, trying to latch onto that as reason why he brought in Diaco to maybe set up a three-four, kind of like Wisconsin's. Like maybe it's it fits the recruits you think you can get or something. I don't know. I mean, I uh, I, I I think the short answer is just that he's a good defensive coordinator or is regarded as such. He's on the board, therefore let's go. Um, defense was not their problem last year. They they improved from 54th to 33rd in defensive S&P last year. They they regressed from 29th to 68th on offense. Uh, and I like their offensive coordinator just fine. But um, I you know he felt he needed to make a change. I don't really know if that was the change to make. I think all this comes back to the fact that I think the odds are decent that Mike Riley 10 years from now has looked back on it as a coach who was good at Oregon State. I think that's I think that is the best answer. Or, or sorry, that is the most likely answer. Um, I think Nebraska still has not addressed the Nebraska issues, and it has absolutely nothing to do with who the head football coach is. They have got to figure out what they're going to do now that they're in the Big Ten. Now that they're in the modern era, they they don't have the recruiting identity that they had when they were when they were destroying people and pulling 
the Nebraska farm boys out as offensive linemen and then going and plucking the best running backs in the nation and the best wide receiver. It's just that day is gone. And well, they have sort of, not it's gone to Wisconsin. What's that? It's gone to Wisconsin. I mean, that's, yeah, like, that's kind Wisconsin of the recipe that Wisconsin did or is doing. But but for Nebraska to – it didn't go to Wisconsin so much as Wisconsin looked at that blueprint and figured out a way to, hey, let's go in and be highly effective recruiting these guys in Florida on the high three, low four-star level, developing the crap out of them because we're super consistent, and then putting them behind this mauling offensive line of local guys. And this is – I mean, it's a blanket statement here. I know there are specific instances of pulling guys out, whatever. Nebraska left the conference in a huff and forgot that they pulled a crap load of talent out of the places that they played when they were in that conference. They went to the Big Ten, then they got relegated to the West and figured out they just didn't have the same identity. At the same time, it became harder and harder and harder to recruit kids from places like California, California, Florida, and Texas into the American heartland. It has. All of these things compounded while at the same time a bunch of people were just saying, it's okay, we're Nebraska. And anytime you start doing that at any school in America, it's okay, we're who we are, you're doomed. Because guess what? Alabama doesn't do that. They did, and they got the Mike Shula era. Nobody is above that. Anybody at all. Even, I mean, I really can't think of a school right now. Um, um, I, you, you know, that you're, well, you're right about what you're saying about Nebraska. And at the same time, I, I think they just... They got impatient with Bo Pelini, which I, and I know we, we like to oversimplify it as a way of kind of razzing Nebraska fans. Like, yeah, they got tired of only winning nine or ten games a year. They also got tired of Bo Pelini. I can see how that marriage would go stale. I do. I, yeah, I mean, um, but the bottom line was he was, only, he was a good coach. Uh, he never could top what he did in 09, but he was still you know, winning nine, ten games a year. That frustration of never getting better plus Bo Pelini being Bo Pelini was enough to get him canned. Uh, but he really only had one truly bad, like, iffy team. That was the 2013 team. He didn't get fired. Came back, won nine games with an unlucky team in 2014 and did get fired. But I, I think if they'd have made a, made a better hire than Mike Riley, they'd be okay. Uh, I'm not he, – he could still succeed. He has success in his, his uh, past, and he could. I just don't – I don't trust it right now. And, and um, you know, he has to – he kind of bears the burden of proof. They did win nine games again last year, but they were as lucky last year as they were unlucky the year before. They probably weren't actually a better team last year, and so they have a lot of, uh, a lot of work to do there. Uh, we have one buddish question, but no bud to answer it. Uh, at Nerds, I think there's five hours in there. Uh, how much does a coach's history of developing talent for the NFL affect recruiting? Uh, I'm going to try and stay in my lane. They're going to use the hell out of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't have the I don't have the bud the bud brain, um, but I can tell you that we worked on a story specifically about why wide receivers that were four to five star prospects picked things like um, uh, pick things pick schools like. Um, LSU, LSU, yeah, um, because they, well, you know, surely you're going to go catch a like a way like you're going to catch what fifty, forty more passes at um, at Baylor, right? You know, you should go to Baylor. You should you should be you should be you know featured in that offense. But then very quietly, now some of these prospects were just insane in Louisiana, and that weighs heavily in your decision. Right. But a lot of the position coaches, even in the strange world of a less miles offense, said, "Hey, we run a pro system." Um, and by the way, we sent Michael Clayton and we sent, you know, uh, Ruben Randall and we sent et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, oh, so yeah. you're going to block. Yeah. And you're going to run a lot of, you know, you're going to run a lot of shallow crosses where nothing happens. 
and you may be featured on third down, but guess what? It's uh, it's still going to get you to the league probably a lot better than just looking at the the number two on the play card and and you know a, a lot of a lot of modified four verts and zone. I. I'm not trying to imply that you can't get to the league. Uh, Michael Crabtree did. Uh, there's a thousand other dudes that have. I'm not saying that, that running a spread is, is going to hurt you in getting to the league at certain positions, but when you're 18 and 19 and you look at a very you, – you, you see the tangible benefit of going somewhere in terms of that will get me money in the pros one day, that does help, yeah. Um, all I have to add is, like, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a card the recruiters are going to play, and if you're a really good recruiter, it's going to help you. You know, it's a yeah. it's going to be a helpful card, like LSU. LSU had a bunch of good recruiters, and they were able to use that as an extra little, you know, feather in the cap for getting guys there. We need to change gears to talk about Mac Brown. We'll read the question and um, offer up the apology. Yeah. So um, we got an email this week, and I we're we suck at this. We never claim to be good at this. That's my defense. Uh, our friend Vinay uh, says, hey, guys, huge fan of PAPN, as well as both of you as writers. Back when you guys were raising money for Democracy Prep and auctioning off segments, I put in a donation on GoFundMe and sent you guys a message about segments that I'd love to hear through GoFundMe. I never actually heard back from you, and the nat- natural pace of work and day-to-day life caused this to slip from my mind. Ours, too. Uh, to, I guess, repeat my question, I wanted to ask if you guys would do a segment on Texas football from 2000 to 09, i.e. Mac Brown heyday. Because I know that doesn't really align with the PAPN brand, I actually chose to donate $400 with the proposal that you could take the second 200 and offer it to somebody random who couldn't afford a, to donate a, a larger amount to do a segment about their favorite team. At this point, you guys have finished off all these segments, and I definitely understand if you would prefer not to jump back into the game of making segments on demand. Uh, this just came to mind as I was reviewing my taxes for this past year and remembered this donation. Yeah, um, we, we're going to try as hard as we can to start writing stuff down. I actually remember when this one popped up, and I thought, oh, that's a really cool idea, and then poof, it was gone. Um, we also have a couple of Kickstarter guys we need to call and, and have discussions with who supported my Kickstarter for my book uh, and got podcast time that we have not yet done. Uh, this is not intentional. We're we not have, good at this. We're, we have not written anybody off. We just aren't very good at this. So I Texas. think on the GoFundMe tip, it was because the question was actually submitted the way you would – there was a commenting system or a messaging system through the GoFundMe site, and I think it got lost in the shuffle when we were assembling these out. We do apologize. I remember seeing it and liking it, but yeah, we didn't, it was like, you know, next week's thing or something. And then, you know, blah, 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 blah. Excuses, excuses. Uh, 2000 to 2009, Texas football. Uh, pretty good. They were not bad. That (laughs) that decade. I, you know, Mac Brown was around long enough that he really, he became an example of a few different things. Um, and, you know, obviously one of them being sticking around too long or uh, losing touch with modern football or uh, scapegoating your assistance when you were trying to save your job. But but from like from 2009, um, he was a fascinating example of the, the what I would call like the Tom Osborne theory that the, the secret to breaking through is just simply being really good every year. And eventually it'll happen when you get the right quarterback or the right break, et cetera. You know, Tom Osborne couldn't win the big game for two decades. He couldn't win the big game. Um, he couldn't get past Barry Switzer. And when he did in 1978, he, his team then turned around. I got upset by Missouri. They got, they fight, they had their perfect team in 83 and then lost to Miami. They spent the rest of that decade losing basically two games a year, but never one or zero. Um, 
I think there's, you know, that reminds me, there's something I, I want to write about at some point regarding Proposition 48 and how it helped Nebraska, but, um, and how it helped kids who needed help. But I digress. Mac Brown was another good example of that. For years, he had the, the, the reputation of, you know, being the, the February national champion and never winning the big game, never being able to, to handle all those good recruits he brought in. Uh, but meanwhile, from starting in, yeah, starting in 2000, I guess, they, they finished 12th, 5th, 6th, 12th, 5th, 1st, 13th, 10th, 4th, and 2nd over the decade. They were never out of the top 15 uh, that entire decade. And while you expect that with top recruiting classes every year, it doesn't usually work that way. You, you, you have ups and downs if your name's not Nick Saban. Uh, Urban Myers had a couple ups and downs. But Mac Brown never did. That entire decade, their, their downs were going 10-3. and three. So, I, I mean, that was just a remarkable job he did of CEO coaching, of recruiting and selling his program and letting other guys coach it. Uh, he proves every, every Friday night on ESPN during the season that he's not really in tune with the, with the extreme minutia of, of, uh, of, of football and wonkiness and whatnot, but he won a heck of a lot of games at Texas. His recipe worked, and, um, I, you know, his best assistants got old or left and he had to hire some new ones and it didn't quite stick. And he had a big hangover after Oh nine, uh, which he admitted to, uh, and he kind of lost his focus a little bit, but that, that decade was untouchable. Well, it was touchable <laughs> because they only won one national title, but that consistency was got really, touched really, by really Oklahoma really a lot. Yeah. And then they didn't, you know, they, they had, they lost a bunch of games to Oklahoma and then they flipped it around and won a bunch of games against Oklahoma. And then they split a bunch of games. So, I mean, it, it had ups and downs, but the beginning of that decade was certainly defined by a lot like Nebraska in that they, they lost a bunch of games uh, to Oklahoma. And then when they didn't, or when they got by that hurdle and they were in position for the national title game in 01, they got dusted by Colorado. I think, um, well, real fast, let me say this. One of the things that will always stand out to me about really falling in love with the sport because it came late, a little later in life for me in terms of like end of high school, actual college, was I was with um, one of my best friends in college was a te- is, is still a Texas fan from Texas, um, and that the Roy Williams interception um, uh, is it it's Sims right. Yeah, yeah, the the leaping, yeah, that was yes, crazy. the leaping in, yeah, because like just if you go back and look at the footage now, maybe I played it up in my mind. Um, it's like you can see the whole Cotton Bowl behind it, and it was just such a dominant, amazing play. Yeah, the and then watching, came, yeah, watching a Texas fan just instantly, just a three second death, like of, the, of processing what had yeah. happened. It's it's a great college football memory. Um, we're we're okay, we're okay. All we need is oh god, it's okay. oh god, it's oh god in his own stomach. Uh, um, I think that you know what's funny is I don't know if luck is the right word I think that this maybe I kind of want to explore the path and I don't even know how to do this be it like analytics or reporting or whatever I don't know if Texas is the job people think it is I think the sheer amount of pop when I look back at Mac Brown and I look at the success, I don't look at the wins and losses. I look at what he was able to accomplish in terms of networking and building out the recruiting and, and kind of winning Texas. And that's really hard to do. Charlie didn't do it. Charlie. I mean, that to me, I don't think Charlie, Charlie's issue had anything to do with, um, you know, personnel or, or play calling. I really don't. I mean, I know they, they probably should have gotten to the spread a little faster, but other than that, I think Charlie's issue was that he alienated people. He, most of the time, he didn't mean to. The politics of the apparatus of that job is just so imposing. 
Yeah. And I think because of that, I am not I'm not gonna sit here and say, well, Saban didn't want to deal with that, because I think Saban could have dealt with that, but I think there's this like one percent of coaches and it's kinda like Nick Saban who can deal with that. And I think in order to win, because it, and people are probably asking, well, what does that mean? You can just go out and get good players and win, and people will love you. No. In Texas, you're <laughs> Texas. So whether or not any individual recruit the entire incredibly populated state, populated with a lot of good football players, are they getting an offer from Texas? They, do they, does this head coach in this one school out of like the 600 head you know, schools in Texas alone that you need to go and have relationships with, are they feeling the love from you, you know, during recruiting? Um, is this person in this particular town who's a big booster, he loves this guy. This kind of stuff happens everywhere, but it doesn't happen to the size and degree and the scope and the passion of which it does in the state of Texas for the flagship university. Yeah, I think I, that I, alone is just so hard to manage. Yeah, I mean, it's te- well, it's Texas sized. Yeah, I mean, I know there's an example of a Missouri kid, like a Columbia kid who uh, was showing up to every Missouri home game and, and hanging out in the back. And what, they had a bunch of uh, official visitor, visitors one time, some relatively high profile kids. Uh, he was offended that he didn't get shown more love and he left, he went out of state. Uh, like, you know, tough. To, you're a junior, first of all. It wasn't even your turn, but it is a lot easier to for things to get personal or for, you know, for that extra level. And that was Missouri. That wasn't Texas. Uh, so the 14 years before Mac Brown showed up, zero top 10 finishes, um, three, wait, two top 15 finishes and only four ranked finishes at all in 14 years at Texas. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that on average, they were probably signing top 15 classes every year or whatever the equivalent of, of top 15, you know, whatever the rankings if there were uh, official rankings in the eighties of some sort, I assume there were, they were probably signing top 15 classes and they had, they had two top 15 finishes in 14 years. It's a, it is a weird job. It's not necessarily like a hard job. Like obviously like New Mexico state is, but it's a weird job that takes a very specific personality. And Mac Brown had that personality. He was able to corral. um, Well, that, or he was just able to compile. He was able to recruit at a level that it overcame some of the politics uh, for a while. And then he couldn't, and then he couldn't. It's going to be fascinating. At the end, even at the end, after all those, uh, tougher seasons he still had a pretty hardcore uh, set of backers uh, not enough it wasn't big enough um, I, think the, I think the coolest job in college football bill would be uh, i like my job i don't want to leave my job but it would be a beat writer that covers all of the off the field crap for texas football <laughs> i don't mean kids getting arrested or something i mean like all of the shenanigans the of the boosters and the and the high school coach relations and the state politicians and all of the stuff that I'm slowly becoming privy to. And you get to live in Austin, so that'd be cool too. Yeah. Um, it's just fascinating. And I think it colors so much of, of how Texas performs in that culture that it's impossible to separate that from the football part. Last more so than I'll any say, other program. Last thing I'll say about those specific Texas teams uh, early on. It, it, well, A, yeah, it was that they were losing to Oklahoma. That was the problem. But B... They lost to Oklahoma in a different way every single year, oh and I think God. that was I think that was actually worse because like 2000, that was the big mission statement for the national title OU team, 63-14, uh, absolute destruction by Oklahoma. That was their kind of statement of purpose. But in 01, um, it was 14-3. I think that was the Roy Williams year, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I was, was watching yeah. it. And it was, I was watching it from a friend's apartment in Stillwater before the Missouri Oklahoma State game. Um, that, that was a nice where were you moment. That, that would have been a great Twitter thing. Um, the next year, 35-24, I don't 
remember a lot about that specific game. But then in 03, it was 65-13 again. In 04, it was 12 nothing. That was where Vince Young almost, well, the next week against Missouri, he throws a couple picks and does lose his starting job. Or he gets benched at least. And then that's the one that, that's uh, the most, like, that. that's the moral, the, or the, the spirit backbreaker to a lot of Texas fans that I know. Yeah. That and year then, was just, we cannot get that, this done. Right, but then that that ended up being a benchmark too because after losing twelve nothing to OU, uh, they they won the last seven games of '04 and all thirteen games of '05. That was a turning point, so to speak, or those couple of weeks there where Young gets benched and then they a couple of weeks later they fall behind uh, like whatever it was like thirty five seven to Oklahoma State or something. Yeah, uh, I wrote about it in my book, the fifty best college football teams of all time. Asterisk on sale um, now. On sale now. And but that was like a turning point for them, and then you know they they maintained that when Colt McCoy's there, they 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 win in 06, they lose in 07, but win again in 08, that 45 35 game. They actually held the edge over OU for a while, 16 13 and 09, um, but then they lost it again. So it was a weird rivalry, and, and those rivalries do have psychological effects. Bill, we run out of time because I'm late yeah. for a meeting, okay. Well, here's what I'll say about the, the, the open segment that our friend uh, so generously donated. Um, we'll do in it. Comments, in comments. Yeah, yeah, how do you want to do it? In comments uh, at the SB Nation post associated with this, with this podcast. In comments, write a spiel for why, why you're you – know, give us a, a, a segment proposal. This is a 15-minute segment uh, that he has basically donated from our Democracy Prep fundraiser back in the fall. 15 minutes on a given topic. Send us your proposal and say why, and we'll pick the best one. Sounds good to me. Bill, we got to go. As always, uh, we thank you for joining. Please listen to us and rate us and subscribe to us and love us. Um, uh, he's at, at SBN underscore Bill C. I am at 38 Godfrey. Uh, Bill, you want to do this again next week? Sure.